Hi, and welcome to That Cancer Conversation, the podcast from Cancer Research UK that brings together the science and the stories behind cancer with me, Sophie Wedekind. February is always a busy time for us, as it holds World Cancer Day, a whole 24 hours dedicated to our goals, raising awareness, improving education, and catalyzing action around cancer. Since 2022, the focus has been on closing the cancer care gap. It's vital that we do that, but what does it mean? While we have made incredible progress in cancer survival, it hasn't benefited everyone equally. Take smoking, the biggest preventable cause of cancer. It's more common in more disadvantaged groups, which means it contributes to significant cancer inequalities. In England, smoking causes nearly twice as many cancer cases in the most deprived areas than in the most affluent. But that's just one example. Health inequalities are a complicated problem. When we speak about health inequalities, what we're talking about is variations in someone's health experience due to factors outside their control. And many of us are part of a group that is disadvantaged in some way. And of course, one person could be a member of multiple groups. For example, depending on their gender or their sexual orientation, or whether they have a disability. In this episode, I'll be finding out what are some of the barriers causing the cancer care gap, especially when it comes to deprivation, and what can be done to narrow them. To find out more, you can listen to our previous episode on how cancer inequalities affect people in the LGBTQ community. We have more inequality-themed episodes lined up for later in the series, so make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. First, I spoke to Elizabeth Bailey, a Cancer Research UK ambassador for 13 years and a public health manager for Luton. She brings a lot of personal experiences to both of these roles and joined us when she was diagnosed with breast cancer. Before then, she lost both her father and her uncle to other forms of the disease, and a lot of that comes back to smoking. But it's much more complicated than deciding to light a cigarette. Our first cancer death I remember was my uncle, and that was in the 1970s, and he was a heavy smoker, like a lot of men were in those days. Uh, and he uh, developed lung cancer, and that's what, what, uh, how he lost his life. Um, my own father died of multiple myeloma. Uh, he did work in industry all his life. He was a heavy smoker. I know that particular cancer isn't strongly associated with smoking, but he, his health was very much affected by smoking. He developed heart disease in his mid-50s, so younger than I am. Uh, and, you know, like a lot of people in those days, he, he started to smoke as a teenager, a young teenager, in fact. He left school quite young and became an apprentice um, in industry and smoked heavily all his working life. And we spoke a little before about this link between deprived areas and worse cancer outcomes. So later diagnosis and lower cancer survival. And working in public health, do you see clear factors that could be causing this link? It is more com- uh, complex than that. However, you know, broadly speaking, yes, there's an association. The most damaging effects are felt by the most disadvantaged people. And that's certainly true. And that's for a whole host of reasons. And I think in in public health, we, t- you know, if you're talking about health equalities, people who are de- deprived socioeconomically, um, that tends to go with a lot of other life stresses, and those life stresses can have an impact on your health behaviours, whether it's you know what you can afford to buy, what you can afford to eat, where you can afford to exercise, and how you crucially how you deal with stress. 
because with substances generally, and smoking is one of those, and alcohol is another, it's a way of coping with stress. Uh, and the other multiple stresses that come with having problems with housing, uh, working, all of those kind of things. So even trauma in in how you know in in homes and situations where there are a lot of life stresses, it can generate a, a multiple. It can do. It doesn't always multiple other problems and and it sort of edges people towards health behaviours that are harmful to them. Although you know. It, it's not cut and dry, but they're sort of broad patterns in 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 uh, health behaviours. Really, you know, it depends on which health problem you're looking at. And we actually, those of us who go onto social media and watch the television and read the news, we're exposed to a lot of information, and a lot of people know what they should be doing. They know that they should be trying to eat more fruit and vegetables. They know they should be be trying to eat, to exercise more. They know that they ought to avoid smoking and they ought to drink moderately. That information on its own isn't necessarily sufficient to support people in healthier behaviours because there are other factors having a bearing on that. Uh, and those might be social and economic factors. They might be homelessness or joblessness or lack of access to funds, simple inability to afford food. As individuals, we are different. Some of us are more prone to substance use. Some of us are more prone to addiction. Some of us are more prone to weight gain. So you can't have sweeping and judgmental messages about this. You have to meet people where they are and support them from the position they're in. Because otherwise, you're going to have the opposite effect. You're going to make somebody's situation worse. Yeah. And I think there can also be a sense that when we reduce it to things like smoking or obesity, you know, these risk factors, it seems to sound like something the individual is solely responsible for, but then that takes away the influence and responsibility of the government. And that's why Cancer Research UK published the manifesto, Longer Better Lives, um, because we can't make these changes and narrow the cancer gap without policies intervening. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, you know... It's common sense. It's not a party political thing. If people are worried about housing and feeding themselves, it's going to have all kinds of knock-on effects. And, you know, if, when we sit in a public health office and, and think, you know, wh which are the core problems we're dealing with here? Housing is something that crops up again and again and again. Because you, there, you can have quite obvious physical effects of poor housing, poor ventilation and so on. And you can have the knock-on effects of stress caused by poor housing and that might be smoking or drinking or using substances so all of those things that they tend to come together you know they tend to come bundled together in a lot of cases and the effects long term can be very damaging on individuals what sort of things could be done to start narrowing the inequalities gap in these deprived areas health inequalities is a really complex area well, it's, on one level, it's completely simple. You need to make people's quality of life better. You need to have open spaces where they can walk safely. You need to have clean, dry housing. You need to have access to health care and good education. So it's sort of simple on one level, but putting it into practice isn't necessarily so simple. Uh, it's about winning political understanding. It's about changing attitudes. It's about making this truth well understood that it is... It's in all of our interests that people lead better lives. You know, sometimes that makes um, 
we have to make decisions about taxation and about laws and so on. But I think there's there's a, you know, having us talking about somebody uh, from our local university about this today, people don't often see each other's perspectives because they're not exposed to each other. So if you're a policymaker in central government and you're not working as a frontline social worker or anything, every, or like, you know, that kind of thing every day, you don't really get under the skin of what the problem is. So you tend, you know, often you get that mentality where people think in targets. So let's get more people into drug and alcohol support service. That's a good aim. But the complexity of people in those circumstances might not, then it might make it more difficult for them to meet your targets because they're your targets. You know? uh, and it's being mindful of that. It's not saying you shouldn't have the aspiration, but you, you need to understand why some people find it so much more difficult than others. Do you think that some barriers are also perhaps education and awareness when it comes to symptoms or um, even things like smoking or having those community resources? Because in a lot of cases, people want to quit, but the support just isn't there. Those are practical barriers. And we, we know this. We, we tend to design systems. The people who design the systems tend to design systems that feel right for them. And there is user testing. I'm not, you know, pulling it apart. But in practice, you encounter difficulties. For example, it, you, the GP practice I go to is in a very diverse area. And we've had cases of people from the Roma community that are uh, coming in and not, you know, the touchscreen you used to <laughs> register your, that you're at the surgery. And be, it doesn't have the language on it. Uh, and it, and, it's, and that they might not have high levels of literacy in some instances. Uh, and, and people from all communities, uh, you know, people who, whose families have been here generations might have problems with literacy. So um, those kind of things, we, we tend to make assumptions when we design them and make things more difficult for people. And we all know that various factors are contributing to difficulty in seeing your GP anyway, whoever you are and whatever advantages you have. When speaking to Elizabeth, something that stood out to me was that to help the people most affected by cancer inequalities, we need to understand the barriers that are there in the first place. I wanted to know a bit more about what these barriers are and what the numbers are showing us when it comes to health inequalities. To help me, I spoke with Professor Bernard Rache, lead of ICON, the Inequalities of Cancer Outcomes Network, a team collecting vast amount of data to understand more about inequalities in cancer. So could you explain a little bit more about what ICON is and what you and your team are aiming to find out? The, this, this program on inequalities in cancer outcome then started quite a long time ago. We moved from inequalities in cancer survival to inequalities in cancer care and other cancer outcomes. Then when we talk about cancer outcomes, it's all, not only cancer survival, but it can be uh, the type of treatment the patient received, the diagnosis, uh, all along the whole cancer pathway, the patient. Uh, then we we really look at the inequalities, for example, for screening, for early diagnosis, uh, for diagnosis. Uh, then the decision to treat, the type of treatment, where they are they are treated, and then post treatment in terms of complications that are up to. Uh, survival. That's the focus of our research. And when we talk about inequalities by socioeconomic status first, 
but also by ethnicity, by gender, and by age, or by region within England. When it comes to socioeconomic inequalities in England, would you say that there is a specific cause of this um, inequalities gap, or perhaps within the cancer care pathway? I would say not really. I think it's uh, the inequalities in, in cancer care in England is really a cumulative effect. Uh, you have to remember the, the one thing important, which is uh, the NHS has a universal uh, healthcare coverage, then it means that cancer care, uh, which is very expensive, is free of charge. Then it's accessible to everyone. Then in theory, everyone should receive the same quality level of care from the beginning, then when uh, the patient or, or the future patient uh, has uh, some symptoms, then they go to see their GP up to uh, the diagnosis, the treatment, and up to survival. Uh, and actually, we see at each step, there are some barriers which increases the, the inequalities, then inequality in uh, time to diagnosis, inequality in uh, the treatment, uh, then the likelihood to have the optimal treatment, and then in care, uh, post-treatment, and survival. Do you think these barriers are mostly from individual factors or systemic ones? So like um, problems within the NHS and booking a GP appointment, for example? Uh, that's a difficult question. Uh, uh, but the, the assumption uh, where but most of the inequalities were due to individual factor. Then we said the patients were not aware enough uh, of their symptoms, the, the cancer-related uh, symptoms, or the, the GPs uh, were not also aware of uh, the cancer uh, symptoms, etc. Then that's the thing we, we look at uh, first. Then we looked at individual uh, factors, and it's also because the, the data were available, the information were, was available on, on that. At the end, what we, we see is the individual factor of them, poor uh, cancer awareness, then awareness of symptoms. The fact that um, the patient would not seek for medical help, etc. it explains very little. It explains maximum uh, a third of the inequalities. Then. It's actually more within the system, the healthcare system. There are some problems which uh, worsen the inequalities. We'll take an example. Everyone knows that the NHS uh, struggle a lot because uh, they are understaffed uh, everywhere in primary care, in secondary care. Then to obtain, for example, an appointment in primary care, uh, but also in secondary care, it's not easy. It's difficult. Uh, then once you have an appointment with your GP, the duration of uh, your consultation is quite short. It's one of the shortest in all uh, comparable uh, wealthy countries. And it means that we need a few minutes to be able to explain what you have. If you have a poor health literacy, you may not be able to, uh, to explain what you have the first time. You will need maybe several consultations to explain really what you have. And for 
the GP to say, well, that's something we need to, uh, to investigate uh, further. Then that's one, one example. Uh, but then you need to be referred. And there are some areas where the consultation in secondary care may take time or to have a diagnosis test. It's, I think it's accumulation of barriers which make uh, the people who don't have the tools to navigate the system in danger for late diagnosis and who outcome. Yes, so there's two phases, I guess, that can delay that diagnosis before even going to the doctors. One being able to recognize symptoms and then the next to make the first appointment and go to the doctor. I also think making appointments and attending them these days also now require digital literacy too. Um, and that could possibly cause more people to avoid going. So I'm thinking, you know, elderly people, um, things like check-in and prescriptions using apps, that sort of thing. Actually, it's not only elderly people. It's more than uh, 10% of the British population, which uh, has poor uh, digital literacy, then they won't be able to obtain an appointment uh, for in primary care, but also for the diagnostic test, etc. Then that's already a lot. Uh, and these people will be in difficulty. And even those who have a higher uh, digital literacy, many may not be at ease using these, uh, these tools and would prefer a face-to-face -face, uh, consultation uh, or face-to-face -face contact, uh, physical contact to, uh, to make the appointment and to discuss with their GP. Yeah, definitely. And I think I'd prefer having a face-to-face -face consultation. But like you said, that time you have with your doctor is so short. So it's hard to really communicate everything you want to. In the data that you have, are you seeing cancer outcomes in quality of care based on a postcode lottery? So where you live and your local GP being a factor towards um, the presence of health inequalities. Uh, when we say postcode lottery, it's, it looks like it's something uh, random. It's not random. It, uh, well, it's quite clear, but actually the, on average, the poor areas, they have higher struggle uh, to obtain uh, consultation in primary care, in secondary care, etc. And they have poor outcomes, cancer outcomes, then in terms of uh, the optimal treatment, uh, but also survival. Why do you think that is? And, um, you know, we're currently in a cost of living crisis, now officially a recession. Will that have a severe impact on health inequalities, um, specifically cancer inequalities across the UK? Well, that's not an easy uh, question. Uh, there's no doubt that these circumstances uh, will worsen and have worsened the inequalities. Of course, not only uh, in treatment, but also in the occurrence of the disease, then of cancer. Then this is not an area we work on, but but uh, it certainly has a, a huge impact. But even in accessing the, the cancer care, it has an impact. Uh, we have to remember the patient, they need to jingle with uh, different priorities in their life. And if uh, socially they, they struggle a lot, then they have to, to make uh, choices. Uh, they may not be able to travel 
to get the best uh, treatment. And uh, we we have, uh, uh, and is it good or not? I don't know. But uh, the the cancer care tend to be more centralized, to be more standardized, to have a higher quality, maybe. But the, the access is becoming even more complicated for some patients, some population. Uh, then what to do? I don't know. Yeah, funding uh, better the NHS. Yeah, but that's not on the agenda, on the political agenda for for the moment. Um, we should also one thing, uh, both in research and policy, uh, we should uh, better uh, listen to the voices of the population who are more likely to experience inequalities, because. It's quite clear we and and the, the policies focused on individual factors because we, you know, this is our point of view. But actually, we we maybe we should uh, before uh, deciding the intervention and policy listen a bit more about uh, what they have to say. Yeah, I think that's a really key point that to solve the problem, you have to listen to the people who know it by experience, which in a way is just as valuable as data. So yeah, ICON is looks at a huge data set, but why is having data important when moving forward to reduce health inequalities? I think this is for sure, because without uh, these data, the data and without demonstrating this, we can always say there are inequalities at all, but we need to demonstrate that's the first point and and it was very important uh, uh, 20 years ago when uh, it was shown several times first that there were wide inequalities second that actually the cancer outcomes uh, within the UK were much lower than many other European countries and that was a, a shock and you need data to demonstrate uh, uh, that the second part I think now where we are it's not only we try to explain the inequalities, but also to evaluate policy. And I think this is very important. But to do that, we need also access, uh, timely access to the data. We produce, I mean, we, the, the country, produce great data, uh, very variable uh, data. Now the problem is to have a timely access of this data to be able to study very quickly, but also then the mechanisms leading to these inequalities, but also uh, to evaluate interventions aiming at reducing these inequalities. And I think this is very important. This is probably the most important, important challenge about data at the moment. It's, it's really that the data can be very useful, but it would be even more useful if we had a timely access uh, to this data. And what are some of the next steps that you think need to be taken to better health inequalities and to narrow that gap? Uh, it's really to focus on uh, on these barriers uh, at system level, to try to really go deeper in that and understand which components of the NHS are susceptible to or likely to uh, increase the inequalities or to reduce the inequalities. And, and then really to then to recommend some uh, policy intervention and evaluate them. I think that's really key. It's really to show that it's possible to reduce inequalities. It's not a fatality, uh, but we need to demonstrate that. Um, 
but really the next uh, our our next uh, uh, aim, let's say. Here at Cancer Research UK, we're constantly striving to narrow the cancer inequalities gap. From speaking to policymakers to individuals like you and me, it takes a collective effort to make progress for everyone, because beating cancer should mean beating it for everyone. I spoke to Julia Cotterill, an officer in our health information team who look after the evidence on aspects in this area. She and her team have written many articles on cancer inequalities for Cancer News, and so I wanted to get her take on the matter and what Cancer Research UK is doing about it. When we talk about um, cancer inequality specifically, which is what we're what we're talking about today, we're talking about differences in cancer outcomes between groups which are unfair, systematic and avoidable. And in terms of the reasons behind cancer inequalities, of course, knowledge can be part of it because knowing what types of changes in your body to look out for, for example, when we're talking about symptom awareness and knowing where to go and how to get health advice when you need it. Uh, yeah, again, that's an important part of it, as well as knowledge about what kinds of things we can do to reduce our risk. But what we're often looking at is barriers to accessing the kind of help that we need. So it could be barriers to getting the knowledge that we need, or it could be barriers to seeking help, to attending screening. Those could be practical barriers, for example, not having the the time or not being able to spare the resources, for example, to travel to an appointment or to be able to have childcare in place for when you need to go and see a health professional, whether that's for screening or for health advice or for something else. And they could also be emotional barriers or barriers in how we think about our health and how we think about cancer, for example. If there's, if in the community that we grew up in, there's a big stigma attached to, to cancer, then that will influence how we, how we think about cancer, our approach to seeking a diagnosis and um, what that would mean for us. So looking at deprivation specifically, how does that affect cancer inequalities? First of all, it might be helpful to take a moment to think about what we mean when we talk about deprivation because the first thing that probably comes to mind is thinking about our income or how much you know how much money we have but deprivation is it's multifaceted it includes things like how your know, employment rates and education and crime and barriers to housing it's quite a complex issue to to look at but in practice in terms of cancer being part of a more deprived group means being more likely to get cancer and being less likely to survive it so we could be looking at things like we know that eating a healthy balanced diet helps to reduce our cancer risk but there can be various different kinds of barriers that could get in the way of someone's ability to do that, which could be lack of resources, not only money, but also having the time and the energy to buy, store and cook the kinds of foods that will help to reduce our cancer risk. And we also know that smoking rates are higher in more deprived areas. So before somebody has developed a a symptom there are already factors at play that are affecting their risk of cancer. 
yeah, and those are the barriers that are present before someone even notices symptoms or goes to their doctor. And like you mentioned, some people don't go to their health professional. So do you think there are barriers which contribute to that avoidance mentality? Yeah, absolutely. We could look at, for example, practical barriers in order to, if we're talking about going to an in-person appointment, somebody needs to have transport. So that could mean access to a car. It could mean having uh, having good public transport networks nearby that enable them to get to the appointment more easily. It could be if somebody has other competing responsibilities, if they have a job where they're only paid for the hours that they work, then attending a health appointment means missing out on wages. And if they also have caring responsibilities, it may be difficult to arrange an appointment around those. And we also need to make room for emotional or psychological barriers to do with if somebody is so afraid of what might be found if they do seek advice about their symptoms. For example, if there's um, some cancer fatalism there where there's the expectation that cancer is always fatal, it's you know, people don't survive it, then somebody might be less likely to seek a diagnosis if their mindset isn't that you know, it, it can be treated if it's what you're more easily if it's diagnosed at an earlier stage somebody might not see the benefit then in being diagnosed because they think it's invariably going to lead to being to, to die yeah of course and so we have practical barriers which can be personal or systemic but when it comes to moving forward and narrowing the inequalities gap would tackling systemic issues start to also improve personal ones or is it more that we have to focus on all barriers systemic and personal at the same time to really move forward and narrow this gap i mean there's unlikely to be a there isn't going to be a one-size-fits-all approach that will break down the barriers because one individual could be a member of multiple different groups and face different types of disadvantage so the important thing is to explore potential approaches that could work at the individual level and at the more systemic level and find ways to implement those to help remove barriers so for example it could be training health professionals to understand some of the cultural barriers that people from certain backgrounds might face, whether that's to do with if somebody comes from a household where there's a tradition of modesty for women, and it might be that somebody's background tells them that people outside your family or other than your husband shouldn't see you in certain situations and it's important for health healthcare professionals to understand those kinds of factors and what they can do to support someone to access the care that they need and also to to talk to communities and understand you know, talk to people directly understand what kinds of barriers are facing members of that community and what sorts of things would help and to work with communities so if there's somebody in a community who already has a rapport with the members and can help to to spread that messaging 
in a way that they know is going to be effective, then it's it is about gathering information and understanding and then making sure that people have the training and information to implement it both on the system on the systemic side from the point of view of people who are sharing information and providing healthcare and also from the point of view of the communities themselves and the individuals to understand what they can do to reduce their risk and to get healthcare and help when they need it as well. And what are some of the things that we're doing at Cancer Research UK to help reduce uh, cancer inequalities? Well, as we've been discussing, there are so many different facets and and aspects to this. So um, here are some, a few examples of the sorts of things we're doing to to give a bit of a flavour of the kinds of things. So for one thing, policy change is important to work towards a society where healthy changes are easier for all groups. And so uh, working with the government about which changes would support that. We look at digital exclusion because not everybody has access to the technology that would allow them to access either, for example, remote appointments or online information. So we have leaflets as well as information on our website that we distribute and we make sure that the reading age of our materials is as accessible as possible. We have a cancer awareness roadshow which travels around the around the country and specifically goes to areas of highest need. So we identify the areas where, for example, we look at deprivation and smoking prevalence to think about where that kind of awareness and information would be most beneficial and we have data teams working hard to understand more about the issue so that we can act on that information and we can share it. I spoke earlier to um, Professor Rache who's the lead for uh, the ICON group that Cancer Research UK funds. What are some of the potential benefits of doing even more about cancer inequalities and funding research like this? I mean, beating cancer means beating it for everyone. And that means preventing cancers and improving outcomes for people who do develop cancer. And we don't want to see any improvements in outcomes, only improving for the most privileged in society. So it's about enabling everyone to reduce their risk, whatever their background and circumstances and get diagnosed at an earlier stage. And we know that when cancer is diagnosed at an earlier stage, then treatment's more likely to be successful. So this means helping to have better cancer outcomes across all groups and not and not having the progress only felt by people who are already most privileged and therefore widen the gap between people with the most advantage and people with the least and so we need the the government and other authorities to to get behind this aim as well to make sure that the progress that's being made is felt by everyone there's still a lot of work to do and the gap that is felt by many won't be closed overnight we hope that pushing forward with the support of data will call on our policymakers to act on necessary changes that will help get us there. But most importantly, narrowing inequalities can't be done without listening to people who experience these barriers. So stay tuned for our next inequalities episode on That Cancer Conversation, 
where we'll be talking to the people behind the data and hearing their stories. This episode was produced by the digital news team at Cancer Research UK. Thanks for listening and talk to you next time.